We're starting April with a, a new book that we're using for inspiration and leading us off into Easter. I thought it would be great if we used Emmett Fox's uh, somewhat famous book, The Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as you know, what I like to do uh, to, when we start a new book for inspiration is talk a little bit about the promise. I think every good book in the first, uh, first few pages will tell you what you can expect or if there's a promise of what you might get out of it, it'll be in there. So uh, reading from the introduction here of uh, Emmett Fox's, here's what he says. He says, do not imagine that you can assimilate all that is contained in one or two readings. It should be gone over again and again until you have thoroughly grasped the utterly new outlook upon life and the absolutely fresh scale of values which the Sermon on the Mount presents to mankind. Only then, only then will you experience a new birth. And so he really likens it to an utter transformation. And the other thing that I, I love about the book, often books will have kind of little uh, taglines on them. And you might think that something, uh, you know, having to do with a description of, of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it would probably be very scholarly, right? Uh, it's the keys to success in life. <laughs> and so uh, really what we're looking at here is a complete metaphysical uh, translation or interpretation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I want to start today really with where Emmett Fox starts with a little bit of a description of who Jesus was, because I think this is worthwhile. And Emmett is very clear that we're not looking at some... Uh, uh, how do I say this? Uh, my fear is that I will offend people because I know in the, in the Christian faith, people often look at Jesus as a, an, a, an ascended figure, like as a, as a godhood in his own right. And Emmett really plays up the humanness here. Emmett is very clear that Jesus was a man and his extraordinary nature was the extraordinary depth of his beliefs. It's not that he was extraordinary because he performed miracles, because uh, Fox is clear to point out that anyone on this planet, given the faith of a Jesus, can also perform those same miracles. So it isn't that we're holding this, uh, this person up as a, as a God-type figure or even an intermediary between humans and God. We're simply recognizing here was an extraordinary person that had a great deal of both wisdom, but more importantly, faith. More importantly, faith. And in fact, Jesus himself is quoted in many times, and, and I'll pull this from John uh, 14, 11 here. He says, Believe me when I say that I am full in the Father, and the Father is in me, meaning that there is no separation between Jesus and God. Or, he says, at least believe on the evidence of my works themselves. And here he's talking about the miracles he performed. He says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Now, the other thing that uh, I loved about Emmett Fox, too, because uh, we have kind of a new idea, maybe, of miracles and a new idea of interpreting the Bible. And many of us who have uh, looked at the Bible and, and kind of approached it from that uh, idea of metaphor, which is really useful, probably assumed that the miracles were a metaphor, too. 
that when we talked about saving someone's sight, that maybe we were metaphorically speaking about uh, returning wisdom to someone, or that if someone was uh, risen from the dead, that, uh, that the Bible was really talking about being reborn in the sense that next Sunday on Easter, I hope we're all going to be reborn in a sense too, with fresh ideas. Emma Fox says, absolutely not. Emma Fox says, no, these were real miracles. These healings did happen. These resurrections did happen. And they happened because of the strength of Jesus' faith. That there is no reason to believe that sight cannot be restored. There's no reason to believe that someone cannot be healed of a long-term sickness. That with the appropriate level of faith and knowledge, we can do it too. But where are we on the idea of miracles today? I wonder. And in fact, I managed to find kind of a, I think a little bit of a fun joke here to talk a little bit about this idea of miracles. All right, it's called Modern Miracles. Nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school. Well, Mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And when he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge, and all the people walked across the Red Sea safely. Then he used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters for reinforcements. They sent bombers to blow up the bridge, and all the Egyptians drowned. <laughs> now, now, Joey, is that really what your teacher taught you? His mother asked. Well... Not exactly, Mom, but if I told it the way the teacher did, you'd never believe it. <laughs> and, and I worry, I worry that we're kind of in that position right now, that we believe that everything can be explained by science, and that if it can't adequately be explained by current science, then we say it doesn't exist. And this puts us in that awkward position of, of kind of not expecting a miracle anymore, not believing that something as miraculous as a healing, not believing that we really can turn our circumstances away in a, in, in a position that will seem miraculous. Well, the core of Jesus' teachings actually is that we can. The core of Jesus' teaching is that as we believe, so it is possible. Now, I'm not actually much of a Bible scholar, and one of the reasons I love Emmett Fox is he will help you with the idea of going through something like the Sermon on the Mount and highlight some of the key metaphysics in it. But, you know, it didn't take me, as a not very good Bible scholar, very long to find the amazing number of times in the New Testament where Jesus basically explains how miracles happen. Matthew 8:13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed in that moment. Matthew 9:22. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed in that very moment. Matthew 9, 29, Then he touched the blind man's eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. On and on, he explains the source of these miracles. It wasn't touching the hem of his robe. It wasn't some, some kind of a miracle factory that ha he had within him. It was the ability of the people who came to him recognizing 
the power in the moment that healing was possible. They had seen other healings. They had read of other healings, and they were ready for it. It was the power of their own beliefs. The other major teachings of Jesus is prayer itself. He goes on in some detail in most of his teachings about how we can pray constructively. And and again, uh, not being much of a Bible scholar, nonetheless, it was still very easy to see his formula for successful prayer. In Matthew 21, 22, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. In Mark 11, 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have already received it and it will be yours. It's about belief. It is done unto us as we believe. This is the power of Jesus' teachings. And if you want to sum it up, really in just a few words, that would be it. How many of us think that Jesus taught a lot of theology? How many of us think that Jesus was um, kind of busy setting down the rules for living a Um, the good life, for for leading a good Christian life, for observing the Sabbath, for uh, doing what was necessary uh, to improve um, our fellow conditions. Do you know what? He didn't say anything about any of that stuff. Most of us in our early traditions of Christianity or, or observing from Christianity from the outside, if we're Jewish or other faiths, I think we'd come to the conclusion that Jesus had a lot to say about theology, how you should worship, the fact that we should be here on Sunday morning, and thank you very much, and, uh, <laughs> and tithing to the church, and how to respect the priests, and on and on. And you know what? If anything, it was quite the contrary. If anything, Jesus was quite the rabble-rouser. About Sunday, he said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He did what he pleased on Sunday mornings. Now, I am glad you're here, by the way. (laughs) But he was very clear that the church was not the answer. He was very clear that all of the forms that had been set up around how to approach God and the right way to be favored in God's eyes and all that kind of stuff that we're taught from an early age, that that was not important. That the importance here was our own unique and personal approach to God. It was our ability to understand God in our own unique way. It was, if anything, to measure up to our own sense of what's right. Not that of others, not what the priest would say or the rabbi would say, not what people in authority would say how a good Christian could behave. His teaching was absolute metaphysics. And how did he teach? This was kind of fun too. And, and I want to liken it to teaching in layers. And l- let me explain a little bit what I mean. Those of you who are cooks probably know how lasagna is made, right? And you have kind of a foundation of sauce and then some noodles and a little cheese and then some more noodles and some more sauce. And, and it's kind of built up. And if you were to look just at that bottom layer, which is usually a little bit of sauce or olive oil, you'd think, well, this isn't going to be all that good. (laughs) I mean, it'd be fine, it'd be nourishing, but the joy in something that's built up in layers is the richness of it is the, the really the consistency of all those beautiful flavors melding together. And that, believe it or not, is the way he taught. It, it, it may be a kind of a cheapening of it, to put it in food terms, 
But he started with an idea, a, a literal story or a parable or something like that, very easily interpreted, very simple. And then he would add a layer of it. And often the layer was in the, set, the first set of words even. You would read through a parable, you would read through one of his, uh, his metaphors or, or his extended speeches, and you'd go, okay, so that's a story about someone planting a seed. So, you know, we've got a, uh, something going here about agriculture, you know, 2,000 years ago. But then you'd read it again, and it's like, oh my gosh, the seed is about a new thought. The seed is about a new way of being, and I am that plant, as well as that farmer, as well as the person doing the weeding. And where in my life am I like the weeds even? It was built up on layers. The other thing that you might be curious about was, so, so what was the material of these talks? When he would have one of his seminars, like the, the series that we today call the Sermon on the Mount, you know, what did he talk about? Um, you know, was it how to get close to God? Was it how to live the good Christian life? Not at all. I, once again, I went back to the New Testament, and I counted up about between, depending on how you look at it, between 40 and 50 examples of Jesus actually teaching people. And I, I took a little tablet, a, a little tally about what he talked about. So of, of that 40 to 50 times, 15 of the times, he talked about work and employment. He talked about uh, being a boss about being a worker, the fairness and labor policies of the day. He talked about work. Uh, Eleven times he talked out and out about money, how to take care of money, how to save money, how to make money, how to be successful with money. Ten times he talked about relationships, how to be a good father, how to be a good husband, how to be a good brother, how to show up in the world with love for the people that are around you, even if they're not related to you. And uh, about half a dozen times, he talked about the most mundane, everyday things like cooking, how to make bread, how to, um, um, you know, keep, uh, how to keep your house clean, the, the most mundane things. You know what? I guess things haven't changed that much in 2,000 years. What are the things that interest today? Work, money, relationships, everyday issues, Right? Jesus was a teacher of what was important to people. And you know what? What is important to people has not changed much in this time. And so these stories, once we sort of understand some of the literalness of them, because, of course, it, it is from a different time. The foods that he talked about are very different than what we eat today. The, the labor practices that he's talking about are very different than the way the world works today. So we do have to get an idea of what he's talking about but it is the everyday part of our lives that he used as the fodder for his speeches and his talks. And today what I thought I would do is actually guide us through one of these. Now the Sermon on the Mount actually begins with the Beatitudes, and we're going to do those uh, next Sunday during Easter itself. It's a lovely poem. He opens the Sermon on the Mount with a poem, and we're going to do that next week. It'll, it's, well, you have to come. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> But what he starts as he addresses the people, so pretend that you have um, labored some to get to the top of a hillside where it's a little cooler. You've, you've climbed up from the, the river floor where it's a very hot day out, and you have settled down to, to hear a seminar. And this is how you're initially addressed. This is from Matthew 5. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, now, this would have brought a laughter, i got to tell you. I mean, think about it. You are the salt of the earth. Oh, but by and by, you're going to lose your saltiness to the curb with you. People would have had some amusement at this. People would have laughed. And on the surface, what's he talking about? This is, again, one of those sort of cooking metaphors, right? What he's saying, and this, I believe, is good Martha Stewart kind of sense, too. It's like if your spices aren't spicy anymore, throw them out. They're not really any good. So from the very literal perspective, he's really just saying, you know, we got to be careful about the things that we hold up in life, like spices. When they're no longer useful, don't keep dragging them around with you. So in a very literal sense, a cooking metaphor here. But the next level, when we're called upon to look at this from a, a more metaphysical standpoint, he's addressing people in this way. And so what is it about people that loses their savor, that loses their ability to be fresh and taste good. Here we're back in the realm of thoughts again. It is our ideas, it is our faith, it is our, um, our ability to hold on to that which we want that he's talking about. And isn't it true that over time we can lose that? It wears down. Whether it's a relationship that once was so exciting at the beginning and, and has faded with time over years. Whether it's a job that seemed fresh and, and fun and cool in the, in the first few weeks and then useful and, and okay for a few months. And then by the end of the year, it's like, oh my God, this job. The job didn't change. It was the spice, the salt in our own thinking about that job, about that relationship. It is our own sense of faith that changes with time. This probably has very little to do with the outside world. And so metaphorically and metaphysically here, Jesus is saying we need to take a look at our own faith, our own ideas, our own beliefs. Do they still apply? Do they still have the juice? In my uh, foundations class, which, by the way, uh, some of you can sign up for it. It would be a wonderful thing. In my foundations class, one of the places we start out is doing affirmations. And I still remember in one class, someone came to me months after the class was over and said, Larry, I've got to tell you, these affirmations just aren't working. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, I've been doing an affirmation for three months now. And when I say it, I don't even believe it's true. And I said, well, I think you found the solution to your problem. <laughs> right? In our faith, in our ideas, if we want to achieve greatness in the world, we have to have a freshness in our own belief of that greatness. There has to be in something in us that can maintain that same level of enthusiasm. And whether I'm talking about a job or a, or a marriage or a, a, a you know, in, in a way it doesn't matter. Anything, if you begin taking it for granted, if you begin allowing the savoriness to slide out of it like a spice that's been on the shelf too long, where do you end up? You might as well be kicked out to the curb and trodden under feet. The juiciness of life just isn't there anymore. So then we take something like this teaching of Jesus and we applied a third layer of complexity to it. And that is simply to ask the question about yourself. Where in my own life has the spice left? 
Where in my own life are my opinions and ideas actually getting in the way? What in my own life do I need to kick to the curb to make room for newness, to make room for something else? We can't really go out and buy new spices if the, if the shelves in the cabinets are still full, if you know what I mean. We have to make room for it. And the best way to do that is to get rid of the things that no longer serve us. So this is a cautionary tale for us as individuals about what's not lurking, working anymore. Has our primary relationship lost its savory nature, the sweetness, the goodness? Is the job that I'm in seeming humdrum and a challenge and I'd rather, you know, I'd rather sleep in in the morning? What elements in our lives personally, and, and I'll turn this into a homework assignment for you, what is it in your life right now, and it may be something that used to work really well. It may be a relationship with, a friendship with someone that was so very sweet at one time, and the sweetness has left it. It might be a job that initially you loved more than a job you've ever had before. job itself hasn't changed much, but you feel so differently about it. How can we begin loosening up and letting go of those old ways of thinking to make it new again? Now we're coming up to Good Friday, and, and, and Sharon mentioned we're having the Surrender into the Mystery service this Friday. We're actually going to do a bit of a ritual and a celebration of letting go. So if you have something in mind right now, if, you're, if your homework is already in your mind coming to fruition and there's something you want to release, something that no longer serves you, whether it's thoughts of poverty, whether it's thoughts of not being good enough, doesn't matter what it is, if it is no longer serving for you, let's kick it to the curb as a group. Friday night would be a great time. Come join us for Surrender into the Mystery. And then next week... Next week, we're going to continue a little bit in this book of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to begin realizing a bit of that new life, a bit of that resurrection. And in fact, that is the next step here. That is the, the next follow-on even of this particular talk about the salt of the earth here. It is to make way for what is new. It is to get ready for adding the spice back into life for holding close to you something that will work, something that's new. It's about being open to a new way, a new transformation, a new life. So I hope you will join us next week for that. I'm going to quickly summarize here and just end with another quote from Emmett Fox. So to summarize, I would say, Jesus was a person of great faith, and we can be also that miracles can and do happen, and they happen through faith and belief. And finally, that Jesus was both a metaphysician and a practical man. He used common issues and resolved them through, the truth, through truth and belief. And he was not a theologian. He was not into prescribing how you should approach God, how you need to be worshipful, how, how you need to show up in the world. That was for you to decide. So I'm going to close with uh, how he ends this particular chapter here. He says, If you really do wish to alter your life, if you really do wish to change yourself, to become a different person altogether, if you really do want health and peace of mind and spiritual development, then Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount has clearly shown how it is to be done. The task, 
can be accomplished. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence on this planet. It is this thing that I call God. And what I know is that God is always in full force. It has to be. It is every person, every place, everything, every situation. It is all God. And because God is everywhere present, I know it means me. I know that my life is poised in that one life of God. That my thoughts are reflections of the infinite mind of God And that that infinite mind of God always has new ways of being, new ways of accomplishing, new miracles, if you will, to be brought about. And as it is true for me, I know it is true for each person in this room. Each person here is an individual manifestation of that allness that is God. Each person here has access to that power, that miraculous power. Each person here, through their own thoughts, through their own beliefs, through their own deepness of faith, can call upon this wellspring. And I anchor this thought today with great gratitude. I anchor it in the sure knowledge that it is done to us as we believe and that our belief is strong. And so I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for being here.